I see there's a few more people filtering in, but I think we, uh, we need to make a start. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this uh, investment-themed concurrent session. Um, just quickly, firstly, an announcement that the organizers have asked me just to read. Uh, due to the huge popularity of Nene Malefi's Developing the Skill of Inclusion, Inclusion Workshop, we will be extending the venue to accommodate a few more people for today. Those who have already registered will have preference, and thereafter it will be on a first-come, first-served basis. The venue remains unchanged as boardroom three. For those who booked for a workshop yesterday and were not able to attend, please mention to the staff member at the door. Should you wish to attend the workshop but not manage to do so today, please leave your details with the registration desk and the Actual Society of South Africa will contact you with regards to future workshops. Okay, and then on to um, today's session. Emlyn Flint will be pre presenting to us on regime-based tactical al allocation for equity factors and balanced portfolios. Um, Emlyn heads up the quantitative research team at Peregrine Securities. The team have won quite a few accolades over the past few years, which I'll not go into now, other than maybe mentioning that, that Emlyn's been voted the Young Analyst of the Year in the Financial Mail Awards for the past two years running. So Emlyn, we look forward to hearing what you have to say to us today. Um, the topic of equity factors is one that will be uh, very familiar to most investment professionals in the room, as it certainly has been the flavor of the month, um, both locally and globally uh, in recent times. Um, Inman's presentation today will start by giving a brief overview of equity factors, and then he will expand on a potential practical application of market regimes and equity factors in an investment process. Inman, over to you. Thanks very much, and thanks to the Actuarial uh, Society for letting me speak here. Um, I realize this is quite a technical topic, so I'm glad to see there's about twice as many people in the audience as I expected, uh, which is nice. Probably twice as much as what I, uh, from, from when I spoke last year, which was perhaps even more technical. So we're on an upwards trend, which is good. So what is the goal for today? The goal is perhaps not to provide the most entertaining talk, but what I do want to do is I want to provide an educational talk, elucidate you about the potential for regimes in uh, an investment process, and particularly look at regimes from a tactical, tactical asset allocation point of view. And as Edri said, we're going to focus on two areas, the one being factors, and he says it's the flavor of the month. I think it's more like the flavor of the last two years, particularly in international markets, and it's becoming very, very big here in South Africa. And then also the more traditional uh, asset universe of balanced portfolios. So we've got quite a bit to go through today. Um, I've made these slides quite content heavy. Okay, so this is, I, I'm giving you fair warning at the beginning. I'm going to be playing quite fast and loose with a lot of uh, jargon. I might skip a few slides. These are going to be made available to you after the convention, and uh, you will be able to go through them at your leisure. Um, so you can think of them more as slide humans rather than uh, presentation um, tools in that case. So without further ado, let's get started. So this is our roadmap for the day. We're going to talk about why we want to view the world from a regime point of view. And it's not the only way to, the, to view the world, obviously. There's many other ways. Um, I'm a fan of regimes, and I'll, I'll try and explain why I am a fan and hopefully convince you of, of the merits of that, that approach. 
Then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the actual data sets. Now, like I said, balanced portfolios are very traditional. Everyone knows them. They, you know, they're, they're our bread and butter. Factors are slightly newer, and everyone has their own take on what factors are. So I'm going to try to give an, a general overview of how one can create factors, uh, which goes all the way from you know, the FTSE Russell factor indices to the research affiliates uh, fundamental indices to the long short hedge fund strategies that are factor based. It can all fit into this kind of framework. Then we're going to talk about if we believe in regimes, we then need to identify these regimes for them to be useful. And firstly, we're going to try and identify them in sample. And then once we've identified them in sample, we, can, we then ask the question, can we forecast these regimes? Can they become useful to us in a forward-looking manner? And then finally, like I said, there's a, there's a lot of applications that you can use regimes for. We're going to look at tactical asset allocation. Okay, so as I'm sure you are all aware, markets are unfortunately not a simple thing uh, to work in. Uh, every day is a bit of a challenge. And from a statistical point of view, uh, there are certain stylized facts that have been made famous by someone called Ramakant uh, back in 2001, and he identified these. And basically, a stylized fact is something that is prevalent in almost all markets worldwide. Um, they used to be observations or anomalies. Uh, now they are just part of life. And um, what we want to do is we want to try and think of a way that we can model the market that captures these effects. But we don't want to complicate our lives. Okay, so so you, you're always balancing, balancing simplicity and complexity on both sides. And the nice thing is that regi regimes, I think, can capture both of those aspects. So I'm going to take you back to potentially... Uh, not a good period in, in, in many of our lives, models and contingencies and things like Markov chains and transition probability matrices. I'm sure you, you might have blocked those words out by now, uh, but hopefully they're somewhere, somewhere in the back of the memory. Um, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to show you too much maths. Uh, I, I've learned from past experience that for every equation you show, 10% of the audience gets lost. Um, so I've tried to include 10, uh, and we'll see how we go. Okay, uh, could you please play the video? So this is a very, very simple indication of what a regime model can do. We've got two regimes. We've got your bad, uh, downtrending, high volatility uh, red regime. You've got your good, uptrending, low volatility green regime. The nice thing about regimes is that we say, let's assume that the market is some unknown mix of two known regimes. And in the long term, uh, what we can do is we can blend those regimes in some kind of uh, way and we can create that black line, right? And that, that black line can go all the way from being extremely bad to extremely good. And by blending those two very, very simple regimes, you get something very complex out, um, particularly in the middle there where you saw almost a, a bimodal distribution coming out. So you get simplicity at low cost, okay? And in the long run, we generally think markets are, let's say, 80% or 70% uptrending, 20 or 30% downtrending. So we see that black line coming out, which means you've got your long left-hand tail, that's your market crashes. That's what we want to hedge against, or that's what we want to insure ourselves against. So the regimes can identify the long-term um, distribution of what market returns look like. But what happens in local time? What happens from day to day or month to month? What we find is that we shift between these regimes, okay? 
And what I'm showing here is the red areas are representing the down, the, the, the periods when the market is in the down regime. And the green or the unshaded areas are representing when the, period, the market is in the up, the up regime. And so we start to see those market characteristics that I showed earlier. You've got your volatility clustering coming through. You've got higher volatility in your downtrends. Uh, you've got correlation between volatility and, and trend coming through, higher volatility or inverse correlation. So higher volatility leads to lower, uh, lower markets. And we get all of, that, all of that kind of stuff for free. Now, this is not market data. This is just something I made up. Okay? What I'm trying to do, though, is I'm trying to show you that this could be market data. It certainly looks like it to me. If I saw it, I would think, okay, that looks like some uh, general equity curve. So why use regime models? Well, it captures what we see, which is very important, um, both from an intuitive point of view and a statistical point of view. And perhaps more importantly, you can tell a very, very good story around it, which um, perhaps I shouldn't be saying as a, as a, as a quant-based person, but the story uh, is probably more important um, in most cases than, than the process. As long as you've got a good process, your story is actually what, what, what gets the message across. And then finally, I hopefully I, I've showed you that, yes, there's a bit of maths, maths involved behind it to work out how those two, uh, the likely sequence between the up and down regimes. But because you're working with two very simple distributions and you're just blending the two uh, in a ratio of between 0 to 100%, you get out a very complex system which is robust and fairly tractable. Okay, so that's at least my motivation for, for market regimes. What about the data that we're going to look at? So there's a very, very smart man called Attilio Meucci, uh, who some of you may know uh, or may have heard of. Um, and he runs a very, very good course on portfolio and risk management, by the way, uh, in New York, uh, which is a good opportunity if your companies let you go to those courses to see the world and learn something at the same time. Um, and what he's done is he's outlined this generalized factor construction process where he's split it up into three independent components. Uh, the first being a purely signal processing uh, component. The second step being taking your signals and converting them into financial information. And then the third step being a portfolio construction um, uh, step. So how does the signal processing work? Well, in the factor world, or the factor view of the world, what we assume is that there are a set of unknown, or a small handful of unknown factors that drive risk in the markets. Um, we then have to link those unknown factors to something that we can see in the market. So we say size is some function of market cap, value is some function of an, a fundamental um, company variable, price to book, price to earnings, uh, price to cash flow, etc. momentum, similarly a function of the returns. So we've converted the unknown into something known, and we get a signal, and we get a score um, for every single stock. So then we say, well, we've got a basket of stocks at any point in time. We can rank those stocks at that point in time using the scores. Now, this is where a lot of the subjectivity comes into it. Uh, you've got various ways of making sense of these signals across the basket of assets. So this is representative of a long short, the long being on the left side, the sh uh, sorry, the shorts being on the left side going down, the longs being on the, on the right side uh, going up in the shaded area. So you can just take a basic ranking. Lower means we're short, higher means we're long. Uh, you don't have to. You can say, well, we think the, uh, the extremes are actually outliers, so let's kick them out. Or we can say, well, the extremes are perhaps outliers, but they're the strongest signal, so let's keep them at a lower weight. Or we can do the FTSE Russell approach, where we say the, the extremes are actually the 
the most powerful signals, so let's upweight them more. Um, so this is all, you know, kind of drawing curves and, and fitting it. Then you've got your long only space, uh, the classic version of the farmer French, where you take the top 30%, the bottom 30%, and you go long, short, equal weight. And so there's, there's various ways of doing it, and that's all essential signal processing. Once you've got your signals, once you've made sense of them across your basket of assets, you then have to say, how do those signals correspond to financial inputs? And again, it can be very, very simple. Lower signal, lower return. Higher signal, higher return. Um, you can get a bit more complicated as well. Um, Flome, for those that don't recognize it, and it's not a well-known acronym, so don't feel um, bad if you don't recognize it. It stands for the Fundamental Law of Active Management um, from De Silva and Grinald. And that one, it's, it's a fairly complicated way of turning signals into, uh, alpha signals into financial inputs. So we've got our financial inputs, and again, finally we go to the third step. How do we take the financial inputs and create a portfolio? Okay, so you've, you split this up into three steps, and again, this can be as simple as complex or complex as you want. Equal weight, cap weight, mean variance, um, optimized in some kind of way to minimize the value at risk of the factor portfolio such that you have a tracking error close to a certain index, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the nice thing is that we've got a generalized framework where we can actually create any factor portfolio that we want, and it's hopefully fairly simple to explain exactly what you've done, and it, it helps you in terms of how your thinking uh, is formed around um, your factor portfolios. So what we've done is, um, we being uh, Peregrine Securities, is we've created a set of factors based on international standards. And in this case, we take the basic farmer French approach, which is the dots in the picture represent all the stocks at a certain point in time, and they're ranked based on size on the x-axis and some factor, sorry, size on the y-axis and some factor on the x-axis, right? You then say size is broken up 50-50, you say the factors are broken up bottom 30, middle 40, top 30. So you've ultimately got six portfolios that you run through time independently to each other. You rebalance them, you know, uh, every so often depending on how, what you think the decay length of, of, of a signal, a factor signal is. Uh, in this case, we use a constrained version of the all-share index. There's 160 stocks. You constrain it to only have the top 95% of the, the weights, and that gives you about 90 to 100 stocks, depending on the time that you're looking at. So it's quite a small space that you're playing in, so you've got to be careful when you slice and dice um, that small. But it seems to perform quite nicely. And obviously, you've, as per all equity research, you have to account for any kind of corporate actions that, that, that come through. And so ultimately, from those six portfolios, what you do is you say, well, if I want to create a long-only version of a factor, I want to look at the high factor scores in some way. The high factor scores here are represented by the two green blocks, being the big high factor and the small high factor stocks. In this case, we just take a simple average of those two green blocks and we get a long-only factor portfolio. If you want a long-short factor portfolio, you take the average of the greens minus the average of the reds. And you can make it as complicated as you want, but that's the underlying premise. So, what we've done is we've taken this data, like I said, constrained all the long-only factors to make it as uh, applicable to the wider market as possible. We've got the data back to 2003, so that's 14, uh, 15 years of data. And we're also going to look at a generic balanced portfolio. So we've got local equity bonds property, global equity bonds commodities, 
and the USD czar rate. The reason why we have currency in there is because we keep the global, equity, uh, the global assets in the global currency. Uh, why do we do this? Because a lot of the times currency moves in opposition to what the global assets are doing. So if you're trying to split things into regimes, um, a down market for a global asset from a RAND point of view might show a flat return because they're cancelling each other out. So that's why we keep RAND, the, the currency, as a separate asset in this basket. And we've got data going back, to, for some of it, to about the 1920s, but as the basket back to 95. Okay, so that's the data. Now, we've, well, hopefully I've convinced you at least of the possibility of using regimes. Uh, we've got our data. Now we need to say, how do we actually work out what those regimes are? We can draw nice pictures, but how do we get the pictures in the first place? So I'm going to try and talk you through the four most popular ways of creating regimes. And some of them are not strictly regime-based models, um, but they are used in practice, particularly the fundamental stuff. It's not regime-based from a statistical point of view, but it separates markets into categories, which is what we ultimately want to do. So we're going to look at macroeconomic data. We're going to look at fundamental data, uh, PE ratios of the market over undervalued, that kind of thing. Uh, we're going to look at technical indicators. And um, this is, again, where I might lose some of the audience. I'm, I am a fan of technical indicators, and I'll hopefully explain why I'm a fan later on. And then finally, we're going to look at the proper regime switching Markov model. And I've left it till the end, uh, just so that you have dread in your heart as you go along. Okay, so let's start off with the business cycle. This picture, by the way, is actually, well, this picture wasn't uh, exactly the same, but that picture was very similar to something that I saw from a paper published in 1823 by a French economist. Uh, his labels were French, but mine are English. Um, so nothing much has changed, basically, in, in our understanding and our modeling of the business cycle of, over the last 100, 200 years. Um, so in South Africa, what, what we find is that there's ultimately three main ways of, uh, that people use to identify the business cycle. Some people use a two-stage business cycle, some people use a three or four-stage. Four-stage is generally the one which is most, um, most often or most commonly used. And the reason why we've chosen those three and we focus on South African literature is because every economy is obviously different. So economies are driven by different underlying macroeconomic variables, depending on if they're labor or um, exporting, or et cetera, et cetera. So, so in this case, we've looked at these three. So the 10-year, three-month government yield is basically the uh, yield spread. And if it's upsloping, uh, or downsloping. That's ultimately what that first indicator is telling us. If it's upsloping, we think markets are in an up regime. If it's downsloping, we think markets are in a down regime. 12-month uh, changes in inflation. In this case, what we're going to say is very simply is uh, the 12-month change above or below its running historical average. And then finally, 12-month changes in the Saab's composite index of leading indicators, which is now also called the leading economic index. Uh, they changed quite recently, well, not quite recently, a few years ago. And that is the Saab's index of what they think the, the future economic um, picture is going to be for South Africa. And again, we're going to say, is the current value, is, is the, the current 12-month change above or below its running average? If it's above, we think markets are going to be up. If it's below, we think markets are going to be down.
So we've tried to keep this as simple as possible. I mean, you can optimize and optimize and optimize and over-optimize and I can show you something where you can get a thousand percent return, but then no one's going to believe me. Uh, and if you actually invest money in that, you're going to lose a lot more money as well. So we've tried to stay away from the over-optimization. So this is the graphic that comes out, and I'm going to explain it. So the first panel is the equity drawdowns in the South African market um, for reference back to the 1960s. Um, there's no scale on there, but it goes down to minus 70. So people complain about 2008. His history has been very, very... Um, well, 2008 was, was a kind period to us from a crash point of view in terms of some of the crashes that happened in the 70s. Then what we've done is we've said, separately for each indi indicator, we've said, look at the indicator variables, and based on our, our simple rules, we say, is the market up or downtrending? Uptrending, we leave unshaded. Downtrending, we shade. So each panel represents what that indicator has discovered as the market uh, regimes. Okay, so yield spread, which is the one that apparently works the best in South Africa, um, doesn't really work that well if you go uh, below before 1970. It misses both of those crashes. But to be fair, in its defence, the yield spread or the yield curve today and the yield curve in the 1970s is completely different. 1970s is mostly state-owned enterprises. Today, it's perhaps a better representation of a true yield curve. So. Uh, let's give it the benefit of the doubt. It does get better over time. Uh, inflation, 50% of the time we're in a down market, 50% of the time we're in an up market, according to inflation, which is not really correct with uh, what we would expect from an economics point of view. The composite le leading index um, also shows a high proportion in the uh, down markets. And what you can do is you can obviously vertically, you know, compare it to, to, to the drawdowns and see if they match up, you know, join the dots or join the shapes. They, the CLI tends to get it in the right areas, but it either starts too early or it lasts too long. So it's not moving fast enough. That's the problem. And that's a big issue in tactical asset allocation strategies. It's your lag and your recovery. You, don't, you want as little lag as possible, and you want as much of the recovery as, as possible. That's ultimately what you're trying to do with tactical asset allocation. And then finally, just uh, as, a, as, a, as a benchmark, I guess, we've, we've put a very, very common um, technical indicator, which is the 10-month moving average. So is equities above or below its own 10-month moving average? If it's above its 10-month moving average, people think it's, we're in an uptrending market. If it's below, we're in a downtrending market. And in that case, we see... Uh, a fair amount of um, confirmation with the CLI, but the, the moving average changes a lot more. It's a lot more flexible, a lot more fluid, and so therefore the, the, amount, the total amount of time spent in the down markets is actually much, much lower. So what we've done now is we've said, okay, let's look at the actual equity statistics and compare them, group the uptrending uh, periods for each indicator separately, and group the downtrending periods for each indicator separately, work out what their statistics are. We would think an uptrending market should have high returns, low vol. We would think a downtrending market should have low returns, high vol. Is that actually what we see? So this is the table, right? So your recessionary periods are in the top, your uh, expansionary uptrending markets are in the bottom. Like I said, we'd expect low, low return, high volatility and recession, and conversely, 
in the bottom table, high return, low volatility in the expansion. The only case we really see that, let's see if I can point, is for the moving averages, right? So we've got our strong negative return, we've got high volatility, we've got high return, considerably low volatility. Uh, and that's exactly what we want to see. We want to see a significant difference between the regimes because that's what we want to take advantage of. In all other cases, the relationship is in the right way, but it's not significantly different. So fundamental, uh, well, in the way we have implemented them, fundamental macroeconomic variables aren't giving us too much of a significant difference between the regimes. Similarly, we do the same thing for uh, bonds using the same indicators in the same periods. And in this case, what we'd expect for bonds is that bonds are a protection or a defensive asset. We'd expect higher returns at the cost of higher volatility in recessionary periods, lower returns uh, and lower volatility in the expansionary periods. In this case, the only indicator that works really is the yield spread that gives us the right relationship between the two regimes. But this is, again, fairly obvious because the yield spread is directly linked to the value of the bonds themselves. So if that didn't give us the right value in sample, then clearly we're doing something wrong. Um, but it's not really working for bonds, the rest of the indicators. So overall, a fairly mixed bag from the, from the fundamental point of view. Okay, next category. Um, sorry, not from a fundamental point of view, I mean from an economics point of view. Next category is fundamentals, and this is ultimately the value investing mantra. Um, buy low, sell high, in a nutshell. Uh, but we want to do it from a market point of view. So we want to say, when is the market cheap? When is the market rich? Um, what gets used often is something called the CAPE ratio, a cyclically adjusted PE ratio, which was uh, invented many, many years ago, but Schiller popularized it, I guess. Um, we stay away from that because it is already cyclically adjusted. So if you take the CAPE ratio, you have to say it's adjusted by five, seven, or 10 years. So what you're implicitly assuming is that the market business cycle is five, seven, or 10 years. We don't want to assume that. We want to let the data tell us, okay? So we're gonna look at PE ratio as a very simple indicator of uh, richness and cheapness, as well as dividend yield as an indicator of market yield. So PE ratio again, is the PE ratio above or below its running average? Is dividend yield above or below its running average? Uh, you can, change your, your, your richness, cheapness indicator as you want and uh, make it a bit more complicated as well. So because we've got two variables and we've got above or below average, we've actually got four, four uh, categories, right? Um, and so we've got here, the green is ultimately our uptrending low volatility uh, market, which interestingly is when the PE ratios are very high, but the yield is also very high. So we wouldn't expect the PE ratios to be high when the market is trending up. Well. Hopefully I'll explain that and hopefully then it becomes um, intuitive. The red represent the crash periods, okay? And this is the actual equities curve. This is not data I've made up anymore. This is the, the South African equities um, going back historically. So again, let's look at the periods in isolation and let's look at some of the, the return and, and volatility statistics. So I just want to focus your attention on the first two columns. And I want you to look at volatility. Then I want you to focus on the next two columns, column three and four, and I want you to look at volatility. Clearly there's a big break there. What's the difference? First two columns are low PE, second two columns are high PE. So PE is breaking up volatility. Now look at columns one and three, and look at the first row, the average return. Now look at columns two and four, look at the first row, the average return. Again, very, very big difference between your average returns. So 
dividend yield is breaking up on return. So as an explanatory uh, framework, PEs and div yields work quite nicely. But remember, this is always in sample. So we're saying we get the value this month. How did the market perform this month? It's not how did the market perform next month. So it, we can't really use it for tactical asset allocation yet. And that's the problem with PE ratios. I mean, let's think about it. So your earnings only changes every 12 months. Your price changes often. So if you're saying PE ratio above or below its running average, you're really just saying price above or below its running average. So when markets are going up, PE ratio is going up. When markets are going down, PE ratio is going down relative to its average. And that's why we see uptrending markets actually show very high PEs. So from that point of view, it's ultimately, it's the mark of principle. Use today's value uh, price to, to estimate tomorrow's price. So it doesn't really work from a forecasting point of view, but from a classification point of view, it's very nice. Now, the question that we've been asked or quite often recently from a factor point of view is, can you use factors to time other factors? Particularly, can you use value to time other factors? Can we say momentum is trading rich at the moment, we don't want to buy it? Uh, Quality is cheap, so let's pile into that. And there's the equivalence of an uh, academic boxing match happening at the moment between um, two companies uh, represented by Clevasnes on the one side, AKR Capital, and um, Rob Arnott on the other side, research affiliates. It's, uh, it's not going to get as many views as the Mayweather-McGregor, but in the academic circles, it's quite big. Um, and interestingly enough, Cliff Asnes is actually the one that came up with this idea in the first place, but now he's completely retracted his position. He says this is absolute waste of time. Uh, Rob Arnott says, no, listen, this is the way it must be. You need to go for it. And they, they both run smart beats of money, just by the way. So they have the same horse in the same game with two completely different ideas. Um, what's our take on this? Our take is that it's perhaps not the best thing to do. The reason why, uh, let's use momentum and value as an example. If you take momentum and you use value to time momentum, ultimately what you're doing is you're taking a set of stocks, ranking them on a momentum score, you're taking the same set of stocks, ranking them on a value score, and you're only buying those momentum stocks when the value score is above a certain, certain number. So what you're actually doing is you're creating a multi-factor portfolio. You're creating a value slash momentum portfolio. There are better ways to create an explicit multi-factor portfolio than by um, hiding it or in a timing mechanism and saying you're timing momentum. So if you want to time a factor, go for timing a factor. If you want to create a multi-factor portfolio, explicitly try and create a multi-factor portfolio. And like I said, there are ways to do that. Ultimately, this, this using factors to time factors is uh, what, what I show on the, the, the left-hand panel there is where you have a building block of one factor, a building block of another, of another factor, you only buy, let's say, the purple factor when it's completely in the top right uh, corner there. That, that's, that's what it means to use a factor to time another factor. Um, but you can create multi-factor portfolios by adding the scores together and averaging them, that's the middle panel, or multiplying the scores together, that's the right, uh, the right panel. Um, you can basically draw whatever shapes you want, actually, and then weight it accordingly uh, in, in whatever functional form. The goal here, or the, the message here, is uh, create explicit multi-factor portfolios. Don't use factors to time factors. Okay, finally, technical indicators. And I'm not talking about uh, teacups and head and shoulders and, and, and that kind of stuff. And um, 
and um, drawing as many lines as you want and resistance levels and all that kind of thing. What I'm trying to talk about here is I'm trying to say, let's assume that there are certain characteristics in the market. For example, there's trend in the market. For example, there's some kind of memory in, in the market process or autocorrelation uh, as another word. If we assume that that characteristic exists, then there's no problem using a simple technical indicator to try and access that characteristic. Our assumption might be wrong, right? But the use of the technical indicators to access that assumption is absolutely fine. Um, so what, we, what we've tried to do is we've tried to look at indicators which are based on sound um, assumptions about the underlying data characteristics, either economically or statistically. And so we, we look at something which is called probabilistic momentum, which is you take 12-month return uh, minus the risk-free, divide by volatility, turn it into a Sharpe ratio. Sharpe ratio divided by the number of periods you use to create the Sharpe ratio, that becomes a T-score. Plug the T-score into the T-distribution and you get a probability out. So what you've done is you've taken raw momentum, you've adjusted it for risk-free, you've adjusted it for volatility, and you've created a bounded measure between zero and one. That's ultimately what we're doing here. Uh, the equation's up there for interest, but it's not really necessary. And so it gives us a very clean signal. When it's close to zero, we know the market is going to be downtrending. When it's close to one, we know the market's going to be strongly uptrending. And then finally, implied volatility. Arguably the best looking forward or the best forward looking measure of market volatility. I say arguably because I'm sure other people have different opinions. Um, and what we say is let's assume that the market is going to be in a highly volatile regime 30% of the time. And so then we just say is, is implied volatility above or below its 70th percentile? Keep it simple. Uh, you, can, you can make it more complex as well, but the idea is to use a simple indicator to access the characteristics that we assume the data follows. And so this is our implied probability uh, line bounded between zero and one. So, and in this case, we use two bounds. So we say uh, 70 and 30. When it's above 70, we're in an uptrending regime, blue shaded. When it's below 30, we're in a downtrending regime, unshaded. We've got that buffer zone to make sure we, we're not chopping and changing our regimes too much. And then similarly, uh, we've got implied volatility. So we've got the running 70th percentile there is the red dotted line. Uh, when volatility is below that, we're in a low volatility shaded regime. When it's above that, market crash. We can put those together. And this is going to be one of the slides I skip. And you can link it to the business cycle quite nicely. And I'm going to look here at balanced data. So we've got two indicators, implied volatility and probabilistic momentum, so we've got four regimes. So we've got the uptrending low volatility regime. Uh, what I'm looking at here is the balanced, uh, the performance of those balanced, uh, balanced portfolio assets in that particular regime. What the shade, well not the shaded, what the bold numbers represent is, is that asset significantly different to the average of the other assets during that regime? Okay, so ultimately bold numbers are going to be very high or very low returns. Okay, why do we want to do this? Is because we want to identify which assets are significantly different in which regimes. Why do we want to do that? Because ultimately we want to tilt towards those assets if we can forecast these regimes. Okay, so that's the final goal here uh, without giving too much away. 
Um, and as we'd expect, you know, uptrending low vol uh, property and equity are performing very, very nicely. Global bonds uh, not giving us too much. And remember I said the global assets here are in global currency. So if you want the RAND value, uh, the RAND return, just add back the USDZR column on the far right. Okay, so that's our expansionary phase. Then we peak and we start going down in the business cycle. And so you've got a market signal which is still uptrending, but volatility which moves faster than it. Okay, so we, we've, volatility is higher, but markets are still saying we're uptrending because there's a lag in the signal. And there we're seeing there's quite a significant de decline in global equity, although it's offset by the, the, by the RAND. So it actually turns out to be fairly flat. This is where global bonds, though, come out really, really nicely, particularly from a RAND point of view. Uh, then it starts, it's crashed for long enough that everyone is happy to call it a market crash. We're downtrending, high volatility. Interestingly enough, the volatility is actually much lower, but the returns are not as bad as that, that second yellow period there. Um, why? Because when you're in a high volatility state, you can also have positive outliers, positive months that come through. Majority of the time, you're going to have negative months, but you actually do have some positive months that, 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 that offsets. And again, we're looking at global bonds here as our defensive assets. And then finally, you hit rock bottom and you start to recover. And when it recovers, it recovers very, very fast. So that's actually when you, the most important time to be in the markets uh, is that first recovery period. Okay, so we start to see almost the map of where we should be going uh, in the different regimes here. Uh, there's clearly significant different differences here across. What I've done here is I've done the same for the factors. And again, I'm, I'm going to skip this for now. Um, I'm just going to point out, though, that there's only one bold number there. So if you're dealing with long-only equity factors, they're going to be highly correlated with each other. Okay, that's, that's, we've only got 100 stocks that we're working with, max 160 if you want to use the whole universe. They're going to be very correlated with each other. So when you look at their performance across the um, regimes, you're going to see very, very similar numbers coming out. Okay. So it's more of a challenge to do TAA with equity factors uh, than it is for a balanced portfolio. Balanced portfolio is exactly what you want to use it on. Okay, last one. Um, regimes via turbulence. And I know I've been saying market chain, but I'm not actually going to show you anything about market chains. Don't worry, it's fine. Um, no transition probability matrices either, just graphics. So this is a simple scatter plot for returns of two assets. And what is turbulence? Um, turbulence allows us to draw that ellipse. That's all it is. It's a multivariate score, Z score, ultimately. That's what, that's what you're doing. And so we classify a turbulent outlier, or a turbulent outlier in two ways. One, volatility is very, very high, outlier one. Or two, um, the, the relationship between the returns has broken down. Things which are meant to be positively related suddenly aren't positively related. Uh, outlier two. Okay, so or we've got a combination of both. So anything outside that ellipse will be classified as turbulent, high volatility periods. Anything within the ellipse will be classified as quiet periods. Okay, again, I said this is just a multi-variable multi version of a z-score. Returns minus mean divided by volatility, but we're doing it across a basket. And so what we do is we, for any basket of stocks that, stocks that we look at, we can work out a turbulence index, smooth it over time, and we say, again, we can do simply, if it's above the 70th percentile, those periods are, are, are turbulent periods. If it's below, it's quiet periods. Or we can go a fancier route, 
and we can do what I showed you in the video. What we want to do is we ultimately want to find the two uh, distributions shown at the bottom, the turbulence and the quiet distributions, and more importantly, how they relate to each other, how they change over time. What is the likely sequence of states between those two regimes? How do they move over time? Because what we ultimately want to do from this is we want to get what is the probability today of being in a turbulent regime. And we're going to hope that that lasts for the next month and we're going to use that as our forward-looking signal. And again, here's simple statistics for the factor port portfolios. We see high returns, low volatility in the quiet periods, low returns, high volatility uh, in the turbulent periods. The one interesting thing to note, low, volat oh, low volatility is really low volatility, but it comes at a price particularly in the turbulent regimes, comes at the price of very negative returns, um, which you just need to be aware of. Okay, in the last few minutes, uh, the punchline of, 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 of the whole talk. How do we, well, if we believe markets are well described by regimes, and if we think we can identify regimes, how can we use this in a forecasting sense? Or what are, what are the results of using it from a forward-looking forecasting sense? And so what we're going to do is we're going to say, can we incorporate it into asset, asset allocation? So I've got two very simple tests here. And ultimately what we've been doing up till now is saying we get a value today, we classify, or get a value this month, and we classify this month. Now we're saying we, we get a value this month, and we're going to classify next month. Okay, so we're going to use today's value to define what we hold for the next month, and then we're going to look next month, and we're going to rebalance our portfolio based on the signals that come in. And so our first test is where we look at a factor portfolio. So our benchmark is an equal weight factor portfolio. That's what most people say, you know, diversify across the factors because they are cyclical themselves, and we've, uh, that table which I glossed over shows exactly that. So an equal weight factor is a very good benchmark, uh, or equal weight portfolio is a good bench factor portfolio, factor benchmark, sorry. And in this case, what we're going to use is the technical indicators, probabilistic momentum and implied volatility. We've got four, four regimes here, and what we're going to do is we're going to tilt towards the various factors, uh, generally in a plus 10, minus 10 point of view, away from the benchmark, so away from equal weights. Uh, I chose these fairly generically. Um, they are quite large tilts, but they're all in the equity space, so you can get away with them. So what are the results? So the first column shows the results for the benchmark. Um, second column shows the results for the regime-based tactical factor portfolio. Uh, so even though factors are highly correlated, they're all in the equity space, we're still adding roughly 90 basis points uh, per annum to our performance, which is large uh, from an equity point of view. And it's significant from a stat statistical point of view as well, which is nice to see. Um, it doesn't come at the cost of additional volatility, so on a risk-adjusted basis we are performing. Uh, we're not changing the tail risk properties too much, so our skew stays fairly constant, value at risk is pretty similar. Um, the max drawdown also stays fairly constant, and that's one of the issues with tactical asset allocation strategies. You've always got this lag, uh, and so you hope that your signal strength is good enough such that even though you, when you lose, lose during the lag period, 
the signal kicks in and then you gain during the crash periods. Okay? And that's one of the things you have to try and manage with tactical asset allocation strategies. Um, we haven't included costs in this whole exercise, okay? but what I've done is a cheat method of including costs. Uh, we work out what's the average turnover per annum. And so for the, the equal weight benchmark, we just rebalance it annually back to equal weight, so there's a little bit of turnover. Um, for the tactical portfolio, it's 14 years. We have just less than two trades a year. We're going plus 10, minus 10. So the two-way turnover per trade is 20%, just less than two trades a year. So we're averaging 32, 33% uh, turnover per year. Then we say, what would the costs need to be to zero the 90 basis points differential between our tactical return and our benchmark return. And that comes out to be 160 odd basis points, which is 10, 20 times what most brokers charge. So that's not going to be arbitraged out by fees too quickly. Then we look at the second test. And this is where tactical should really shine in the balanced portfolio. We've got really different assets coming through in the different regimes. And so here we're going to use a strategic balanced portfolio, which is the basic, you know, 60 equities, 40 bonds, but there's a bit of a, a global um, view in there as well, so that we get on, on average the 60 equities and the 40 bonds. And we're going to look at our turbulence. And in this case, like I said, we fit the whole turbulence model to this universe of assets, but we're not really worried about what the regimes come out as or how they move over time. The only thing we're worried about is we want to work out what is the current probability of being in a turbulent market. What is the current probability of being in a quiet market? And we're going to assume that they are going to last for at least a month. That signal is going to last for at least a month. So if the probability of being in a turbulent market is more than 70%, next month classified as turbulent. Otherwise, next month classified as quiet. So we have two states, turbulence or quiet forecasts, and in this case we are tilting quite heavily. Um, I know this is perhaps not as realistic as some can do, but this is proof of concept. Okay. So it's plus minus 20 to certain assets, and these were picked by me before I saw the results, um, so I've tried to keep this as out of sample uh, as possible. And here is the final numbers. And these numbers are getting to that point where I, I almost don't want to show them. Um, because they, when, you, when you see something which is too good, you start to say, no, there's, there's a problem there. Um, but I think it's still on the border, at least. Um, so we've got our tactical benchmark, benchmark uh, which is giving us 12.3. We've got our, uh, sorry, our strategic benchmark, which is giving us 12.3%. Balanced, which is giving us 14.6%. That's a significant increase uh, in your return. And at the cost of not too much of an increase in volatility. Reason being, because you're tilting towards low volatility assets. Uh, that's why. So it brings down the volatility. So on a risk-adjusted risk basis, we're performing very nicely. We are decreasing the tail risk um, somewhat, but again, not too much. And then again, what we do is we say rebalance the strategic on an annual basis. So we've got a bit of turnover there. Uh, this is... 22 years in the test, we do just less than two trades a year similarly. And so we've got plus minus 20, that's 40% turnover per trade, just less than two trades, about 72%. And the costs required to arbitrage out the return differential are incredibly high. Um, so where does our returns actually come from? Let's, let's take a look at it. Because it's important to understand, is it only crash protection or is it actually helping us in other areas as well? So in the quiet markets, we actually outperform significantly as well. 
which is very nice to see, although it comes at the cost of higher volatility. So on a risk-adjusted basis in quiet markets, you're not, yeah, it's similar performance, okay? But from a pure return point of view, we're obviously much, much better off. Uh, in the turbulent markets, interestingly enough, um, yeah, that balanced negative number should be a positive, sorry, it should be plus 2.2%. So there's a significant difference there um, between your strategic returns and your benchmark returns. It doesn't come out as being statistically significant, there's no stars, it's just because the turbulent regime is very, very um, volatile. So your stats tests are a bit harder to pass, but from a, let's call it a material point of view, I would say that's a big difference. Uh, again, volatility is also considerably lower, which is what we want to see. And no back test would be complete without showing at least one equity curve. Uh, it's almost mandatory, I guess, uh, by now. And so what we do is we show the strategic in black and the tactical in orange. And more importantly than those two lines actually is the ratio between the two. So it's the ratio of tactical to strategic. That's actually what you want to focus on. So when that ratio is upsloping, it means tactical is outperforming strategic. When that ratio is flat, they're performing together. When it's downtrending, that's what you don't want to see. Tactical is destroying value. Um, and a good case in point of there's going to be lag in the signals it comes from the start of the ratio. It doesn't pick up the crash uh, straight away, and then it suddenly gives you nice crash protection. Then there's a period where it doesn't add much value. Um, thankfully, we, we do see it adds value during the, the bull run 2002-2007. Crash protection comes through nicely. And then for the last five or six years, we haven't seen much of a difference between the two strategies. So I'm not saying this is a silver bullet or golden bullet, whichever one you want. If it was, I wouldn't be here. Um, I'd be on an island somewhere by now. But I do think it is a very useful addition um, to a tactical investment process. Uh, it's a systematic or automated way of looking at markets which you can then augment with your own uh, qualitative views. So just to summarize quick, what have we gone through? Why use regimes? Um, it fits what we see, it's intuitive, you can tell a good story around it and you get a lot of power for not too much complexity. Uh, there's a variety of ways to, to, to identify these regimes and I've tried to give you the simple overview of what's possible. You can go in depth into each one of these uh, a lot more. Um, we found that macroeconomic wasn't too great, fundamental, also not too great from a forecasting point of view, good for classifying. Um, I would suggest staying away from timing factors with factors. And then the last two technical indicators and the regime switching turbulence, um, they seem to perform quite nicely. And in the tests, both on the factors point of view and the balance point of view, we're seeing that tactical can uh, add value um, to the process um, in some kind of form. So I know that was a lot to, to go through, hopefully useful, hopefully interesting. Uh, most importantly though, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Emlyn. Uh, Mark Randall here from the JSC. Um, thank you for sharing your research with us. Um, I've got a question around your, your fundamental definition of, of regime identification, um, particularly in the balanced world. So if you look got, uh, uh, from what I understand, you can have different regimes in, in different global or asset classes. So for example, 
you may have high, high forward vaults in one market and low in a different market. How does your model accommodate that? So it depends which model you're looking at, obviously. Um, I'll talk from the point of view of turbulence because that does both. So what turbulence does is it says treat a basket of assets as a single unit. And what we want to do is we want to look holistically at ultimately the, 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 the multivariate distribution of that basket as a whole and see when there are significant differences across the basket. What periods are, are um, different from other periods where difference is defined in terms of volatilities changing or relationships changing. So that takes that into account directly. What you can also do though, obviously, is you can model each asset separately. And a lot of work gets done on, the, on that. Um, it, I think it might just add a bit more noise into the process. I mean, this is already a noisy exercise that you're doing. So you can model each asset separately, break it up into regimes, and then split according to that. The only problem then becomes, from a portfolio point of view, uh, if bonds is telling, telling you to underweight, where does it go to? Um, so, so, so I've tried to focus on, on models which treat the portfolio as a whole or potentially take one set of assets and say this is our, going to be our signal for the whole basket um, and then create uh, tilts for the whole basket based on that one set of signals. Hi, hi, Emlyn, uh, Jakob Bortheter from MLI. Um, thank you for an interesting presentation. Um, just a, a question. So um, I think it was last year that we had a, um, you, over the last couple of years, you've seen an introduction of volatility targeting portfolios in Europe, um, whereby not all volatility is good for returns because of the inverse correlation. Um, have you maybe just compared your model against a simple smart beta volatility targeting model? Um, as you target volatility, as soon as volatility goes above, say, 10%, you just switch into cash. Um, mm. It would be interesting just to compare your model against something like that. Thanks, Yaku. Um, so, I mean, the short answer is no, I haven't compared that. Um, but that is very similar, ultimately, to the implied volatility signal. Uh, that, that, that's exactly what it is, it, the implied volatility signal is doing, except the volatility targeting portfolio changes the portfolio weights dynamically um, to match a single level of volatility, obviously, whereas implied volatility says if it's above or below a certain level, then change your portfolio according, uh, accordingly. So I would assume that the results would probably be similar to what we see from the implied volatility results. Um, yeah. Yes, 
I have run numbers for the long short factors and the numbers are much better. They're, they're more in line with what we see in the balanced portfolio uh, in terms of the size of the differential um, because there you see significant differences because the short side of the factors in some cases is responsible for a large proportion of the total long short factors return. Hi. I, I just got a bit confused when it had um, that column which was high, high up high volatility. It had mm. a lot of negative numbers in it. I'm not sure if I was missed the point or... Yes, so uh, this is one of the, the, the slides that I, I uh, skipped for, for time reasons. But ultimately, the momentum signal is backward-looking by nature, 12 months in the past, so there's going to be some kind of lag implicit in it. Um, we would expect implied volatility to hopefully move a bit faster. Okay, So we want to stay away from the high volatility regimes um, and we want to stay away from the downtrending markets. So if you think of it as a business cycle, uh, from a business cycle point of view, an expansionary period is in the markets going up and volatility is low. Then the market turns. When the market is turning, that is the case where the momentum signal still shows us positive but volatility is starting to increase. So it's actually that, that, that first fall, basically, is, is what up high vol means. And as you rightly point out, when the markets turn, they turn very fast. Uh, and that's why we see those very strong negative return numbers um, and the high volatilities come through. Or at least that's what I've, I've found. Thank you very much.